Take a network break. Stuff your mouth full of virtual donuts to smother the screams of rage against corporate incompetence and join us for our weekly analysis of the latest tech news. We've got stories on Microsoft, T-Mobile, Sienna, financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Unimus, a network automation and configuration management solution. It's fast to deploy and easy to use, designed specifically to make it easier for you to adopt network automation. Unimus takes under 15 minutes to deploy, and you can get more details at unimus.net slash packet pushers. And just a reminder, on September 28th, we're holding a sponsored live stream virtual event with Glueware. We're talking about intelligent network automation. Glueware gives you quick automation wins out of the box, and they also can uh, help you evolve into an infrastructure as code with their low code approach. Uh, register for uh, the event at packetpushers.net slash live stream. We're going to talk to Glueware. We're going to talk to customers. We're actually going to talk to Terry Slattery from NetCraftsman. You probably heard of him all about Glueware and network automation. So come check it out. Yeah, I like to think of Glueware doing a couple of things that are unique, actually. And that's why I actually quite pleased to talk about them. There's two things that I think matter. One is the idea of low code. And I've talked a few times about this, that I want to buy tools where someone's done a lot of the hard work and I have to do the easy work, you know, like just making it, customize it for my business. Right. When I'm making a cake, I don't always want to get flour, eggs, sugar. And in some cases with Python and Ansible, I may actually be buying wheat grains and then milling them. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, so You shouldn't have to have a millstone in your kitchen to make a cake. Yeah, that's right. And then the other thing I particularly like about Glueware, which is uh, they're acknowledging the reality that a lot of customers have a, an existing network. So a lot of uh, intent-based networking products that come from vendors start with the premise that the only way to fix your network is to throw it away and replace it. And that's good for them. And there are good reasons as to why that is a good choice. But Glueware has a very good chance of making working for you in terms of taking what you have and making that into, you know, intent slash software slash, you know, automation, orchestration, whatever you want to call it, and, and coming up with an answer. They work really well at that brownfield thing. So the two things that you might want to come along and find out more about for the Glueware event. September 28th, packetpushers.net slash live stream if you want to register. It's 60 minutes. We're doing our best to make it uh, fast, informative, and focus on uh, technical goodness, not a lot of blather. So check it out. Mm -hmm. All right, let's jump off uh, with some FU, some follow-up. A couple of listeners wrote in with comments about our ongoing discussion of Cisco using WebEx for TAC calls. And I think the gist of both comments was you don't actually have to get a full WebEx license. You can just download the app or use the web login, communicate with TAC that way. Yeah, I've tried that. Uh, I found the WebEx that you run in the web browser to be a problem. Uh, for one, it doesn't run in Safari. You have to use Chrome or Firefox. And I think they actually recommend that you only use Chrome. Could be wrong. Uh, don't use Windows. So I don't actually know if it works in the Windows, in, in one of the Windows browsers these days. Yeah, that's true. But equally, if you've got something else installed, Zoom, GoToMeeting, whatever, why aren't you? Why aren't they meeting you in the middle? Um, but as the person says, he as the second person writes in and says, like, um, you know, how many different modes should you support? And uh, right. yeah, so, so these have got a good point. You know, like if you're a vendor, how many of these apps should you support? How many different ways of communicating with you should you support? And there's some truth in that. But somewhere in the middle is acknowledging the fact that people now use chat much more than they use telephone calls or web pages. And right. there are tools out there that integrate with these web apps and they're called chatbots and you could integrate all of those. Why do I actually have to get on a phone call to get a tech call escalated in 2021? Why or do I even need a WebEx? I should just be able to chat with them simply and effectively in a way that really works. And that's basically where my point is. And they should meet me on my ground. Not all customers are using WebEx. 
And if Cisco didn't sell WebEx, would they be forcing you to use it? No, they'd be using whatever it is that's out there. Right. Yeah, although I'm, I mean, it's good to know that you don't actually have to get a WebEx license to get a WebEx call uh, for tax support. I think that's a good thing. Um, I, I also take your point that, you know, Zoom is very popular. Lots of people use it. Maybe make that an option or something else that's very popular. Yeah. Uh, to that note, one commenter, I think in reference to what we're saying about vendors meeting their customers where they are platform wise, he wants to know why we don't have an FU mechanism available on Discord or Matrix Chat where he is. Uh, so tip of the cap to you for, for that play. Well played. <laughs> He's quite right, except not a single person has ever asked me to set up a Discord. Uh, <laughs> well, there's one. There's... <laughs> <laughs> and I've never heard of Matrix. So, okay, I, I guess. Like, you know, we have Slack. Slack is, uh, you know, we meet you there. We have a form. You can send us email. You can contact us on Twitter. You can contact us on LinkedIn. So we're covering most of the bases. I'm going to make a pledge right now that if Packet Pushers becomes a $40 billion company in annual revenues, we'll, we'll meet you on Discord. Exactly. There you go. That's a commitment. I'll back that up as the, as co-founder. Right. Right? $40 billion. Very good. We're there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, one more FU follow-up. Uh, we talked last week about Arista positioning itself uh, as an edge routing platform for the service provider and telco market. This person is, uh, wanted to let us know that they actually have been evaluating Arista uh, and their hardware for that role, and they found it generally decent. There are still some uh, routing uh, features that Arista needs to bring up to snuff, mm -hmm. uh, but they are pleased to see them uh, making an effort and working on it and think they have potential in the long run. Yeah, it turns out that uh, we had a, a chat recently with uh, the people team from Nokia around their SR Linux platform. And they're explaining that once a year, they all get together at the EANTC and do interoperability testing. And Arista hasn't right, turned... lots of vendors. Yeah, not just Nokia, but lots. Well, and Arista is a notable exception. They haven't turned up to these interoperability sessions. Mm. Um, so maybe it's time for Arista to sort of step up. Like one of the things that I notice about Arista is that their cost infrastructure, the cost, the underlying cost behind their product is significantly lower than their competitors. And up until now, it's been easy to believe that that is a, you know, a heavy use of a modern software development platform. They need less developers and smart testing engines. They don't have 30 years of legacy that they're dragging along behind them. They mm -hmm. can start, you know, with a blank sheet and use modern methods. But another thing too is they're not participating in standards bodies. Maybe they're not doing the interoperability testing because they only do what they want to do sort of thing. And uh, this might be the time when you start to realize that Arista doesn't have all the features and the features that they do have may or may not work at the end, like where the, this is right at the edge of where the features start to get a bit crinkly crunchy, right? Uh, and segment routing yeah, and is, is, and EVPN are two technologies where there's plenty of room for uh, opinionated uh, in, for implementations. Yes, and I will say this person uh, calls out specifically uh, MPLS, not quite baked, uh, and, and uh, segment routing MPLS interop took us some tweaking with more nerd knobs than you'd expect. Uh, so yeah, there's that interoperability issue. Mm. Uh, like uh, again, Arista making a play, but needs to get it uh, do a little more work to bring their routing capabilities. And up he to calls standard. out uh, route maps. Of course, Arista was locked yeah. out of using route map CLI because Cisco patented that, um, and then took. Arista to court some years ago, so they can't use that, but there's like, they have to develop a whole separate language around that. Uh, they can't use, you know, what is basically the existing standards because Cisco chose to prosecute that. Yeah. As always, we appreciate your comments, feedback, corrections, and if you got more for us, just go to packetpushers.net slash FU, FU is for follow-up.
All right, to the news, Sienna has agreed to acquire the Viata router software from AT&T for an undisclosed amount as part of the deal. Sienna has agreed to support Viata in AT&T's wireless networks. Yeah, so Viata, of course, uh, if you haven't been around for a while, you may not have heard of it, but Viata was the first of the open source routing operating systems to make a break and get dominance back in 2010 or so, just as software-defined networking and disaggregation was gathering uh, getting its roller skates on, not exactly motorized roller skates and nothing like what it was today, but Viata was going to be a big white hope and it's VOS, VYOS uh, network operating system and it's quite robust routing implementation was going to be the savior. And then Brocade bought it uh, in 2012. And then when Brocade was uh, disbanded effectively after Broadcom bought it basically for the fiber channel business and mm-hmm. then basically gave the bits away to anybody who'd give them a some pocket money. <laughs> More Kinda, or less, that's yeah. how come Extreme ended up with Brocade's Ethernet business and things like that. I think we said said something along these lines at the time, you know, Brocade just didn't want them, didn't want to throw them away, but just wanted to get rid of these. Most of Brocade, the only thing they wanted was Fiber Channel. And it was very interesting at the time, and we talked about it, that AT&T acquired Vieta so that they could have control of the, the VOS operating system. And apparently they were using it quite substantially in their network and they wanted to protect it. And I think we actually speculated on this channel that they would keep it for a while and then sell it off to somebody else. So for them to hold on to it for four years is a bit unexpected. Uh, you know, they they definitely bought Viata at a time when AT&T was like really committing to network virtualization, to open software, to white box hardware as a way to, you know, drive down their costs and get more of that operational flexibility, build in that software-defined networking. Mm. Uh, my expectation is that they... You know, had great hopes, and they they say they've virtualized seventy percent, seventy five percent of their network, and that Viata was instrumental to that. But I think also the burden of having to maintain your own software was just not something AT and T wanted to deal with. So they've just sloughed it off to Sienna with a deal that Sienna will support it for them for an undisclosed amount of time. Yeah, and of course Sienna gets something that's really important to them. We've talked a bit about IP optical here over the last. I don't know, three to six months, I guess, have we been sort of raising it? And this is the idea that up until uh, sort of um, three or four years ago, all optical networks were optical. And the optic networking company sold the optical to Ethernet transitional. And then, uh, you know, your routers would plug into an Ethernet port from Sienna's gear and then away you would go. And that made sense. All of the optical gear is even today is basically proprietary. So Sienna gear works with Sienna. It doesn't work with anybody else's like Cisco's or whoever else is out there making Mm -hmm. DWDM gear. And it's kind of that lock-in. You make a decision about which vendor you're going to choose and their technology, and then you're locked in going forward. Uh, The interesting part about the transition here is that we've seen Juniper and Cisco buy optical companies as part of that 400 gig buying the, the makers of those SFP modules, those optics modules. They also get access to optical technology, and now they are actually putting the optical modules inside their routers. So the edge of the DWDM network is breaking down, and um, we're seeing that if Sienna wants to maintain its revenue stream, it needs to say, well, I've got a router at the edge of my DWDM, and here's a device, and that means you need an operating system, and you need routing protocols, and you need something that's proven and is going to work, and that customers won't say no to is probably the most important thing if you turn up and say, oh, yes, well, we've got a router, an optical router at the edge of our network now, and they're not going to go like, ha-ha, 
you know, they're actually going to. Right. So Viatas, Vios, you know, they can say like, well, AT&T built it for the last five years. It can't be bad, right? That's a, right. And that, that's a convincing pitch, I think. I think it is. And I think it makes sense for Sienna to want that. They say, you know, they're going to, they have an ongoing investment in routing and their routing and switching roadmap. They're putting a lot of effort into IP optical. Uh, so it does nestle nicely in with those initiatives. Yeah. And you'll continue to see that this, instead of DWDM being, uh, you know, an underlay and IP running over the top, you're going to see much more this DWDM IP movement, this merger of IP over DWDM will start to, they'll start to aggregate together. It doesn't make sense for them to be disaggregated as we, as the technology catches up. So the aggregation, disaggregation, bundle, unbundle, I think the bundle is forming now around this and the the days of Ethernet over DWDM are fading in the same way that Ethernet in the WAN is fading very, very slowly, but fading. Uh, neither AT&T or CNR shared the acquisition amount. I presume that means it's non-material to both of the organizations. And Sienna says the Viata engineers are going to be folded into their R&D group for routing and switching. And also interesting, we'll talk, I don't think we're covering Sienna's financial results today, uh, but they did announce their financial results. But in one slide, they called out that uh, something like 42% of their revenue now comes from non-telco businesses. And <laughs> when you dig into that, you realize that it's actually not enterprise. Forty um, percent. That forty-two percent of the revenue is mostly going to cloud scale. So, direct web scale is something like twenty-five percent of their overall business revenue now, and then a very small part, just ten percent, is government and enterprise. Mm. But still, what it shows is that the telcos are less important to DWDM companies than they used to be, and the cloud scale companies, the Googles, the AWSs, the Azures, are much more important and a growing segment of their business compared to the telcos, but also the enterprise. And those people do IP. They don't buy DWDM to operate DWDM. They buy IP networks. They want to run an IP network and they don't want the DWDM. And there's a transition going on there. Yeah. So we'll maybe talk about Sienna next week. Uh, but you mentioned Azure. That's a nice transition. Uh, researchers have uncovered a serious vulnerability in Microsoft's Cosmos DB. This is a database service in Microsoft Azure. It lets any Azure user read, write, download, or delete another customer's Cosmos DB instance. Uh, the researchers call this vulnerability Chaos DB. Very interesting flaw here in that basically Microsoft, uh, Microsoft's managed database service, which people get really raving about because they don't have to worry about SQL implementations, was basically a Microsoft SQL server connected to the internet and anybody could access it and download whatever the hell they liked. So bad, very bad. And the attack vector was through Jupyter Notebook. It's a piece of software or GUI that allows you to suck in data from the database and then create reports and templates and all that sort of stuff. Very, very popular idea. And there was a vulnerability in the notebook, um, which let people query the account, any other account, and then just take all the data out of your database. Now, in particular, out of this, the thing that they didn't really talk about explicitly, neither uh, the research firm or anybody else, the research firm was Wiz.io. Hard to take a company seriously when you're called Wiz.io, right? But anyway, um, the Jupyter Notebook could also be used to extract the encryption key. So if you have uh, this uh, Cosmo DB in the Azure cloud, anybody who is taking advantage of this could have stolen your encryption key associated with your database for data integrity. And that is now, and you now have to rotate that. It is not clear that 
Microsoft's Cosmo DB actually is able to support key rotation for that capability or that it can do it at scale or that it will even work. So congratulations on being in the cloud. Have a nice day. <laughs> right. Yeah. The main issue is that one of the credentials that you could query uh, is the primary key for that uh, Cosmo DB instance. The primary key does not expire. So if you got it, you have it. And if it doesn't get changed, then five years from now, you can go back and mm -hmm. visit it <laughs> and yeah. encrypt it and authenticate yourself. <laughs> Encrypting row level locking is exactly is best practice so that people, even if they get the record, uh, but you can also decrypt the, the, the record on a record by record basis. You don't have to decrypt the entire database. But if you've got the master key and any keys derived from it are then vulnerable in rekeying the entire database, that is not a fun day for anybody. But of yes. course, you can just blame Microsoft and you're never going to get sacked. So, you know, whatever. Yeah, for its part, Microsoft says it has addressed the vulnerability. Also says it's a detective, no active exploits or exfiltration. It has also released instructions for how customers can regenerate their primary key. And that is recommended. Good luck. <laughs> anyway, it's your weekly reminder that the internet uh, that we so rely on is just a bunch of rickety open source software mm. duct taped to even more rickety propriety software. Yeah, well, well, I think the fun part about this one was that even if you didn't publicly expose your Cosmos DB to the internet for Jupyter Notebooks, it doesn't matter. You can still get the key. <laughs> you haven't got the yes. data, but you've got the key. So. Yep. All right, a quick way to tell you about our sponsor, Unimus. They're a network automation and configuration management software. They're designed for ease of use and fast deployment network-wide. You shouldn't have to become a developer just to automate network config. That's why the makers of Unimus designed the platform to remove barriers of entry to automation. So there's no programming languages, no abstraction frameworks, and no templating. You just use the configuration skills you already have network-wide. You don't have to spend weeks learning complex frameworks. The focus is on rapid automation. They also handle network config management. Uh, that includes config backup to change management, change notification and auditing. It's a full-featured configuration management system in addition to network automation. It runs on your premises. It's multi-tenant ready and supports more than 180 network device types across 100 plus vendors. You can get a free, no obligation, unlimited license trial or schedule a short technical demo. Find out how to do all that at unimus.net slash packet pushers. That's unimus.net slash packet pushers. All right, sticking with security problems, the US telco T-Mobile was hacked in August, exposing sensitive records, including social security numbers and driver's license information of more than 50 million customers. According to news reports, the alleged attacker claims to have gained access to T-Mobile through an unprotected router, and from there moved on to dev staging and production servers before getting into an Oracle database and grabbing records. Yeah, it's not a surprise T-Mobile's gotten hacked. They've had demonstrated fairly consistently over the last decade that they don't much care. There's been a string of announcements around T-Mobile getting hacked, leaking data, whatever, and they don't care. Um, and it's kind of, and I'm not a huge fan of government intervention, but really the only way to stop an organization like T-Mobile is for the government to basically say, if you do this again, we're going to fine you and make you legally culpable for damages here. It's not enough to just go, oh, sorry, well, you know, well, whatever. <laughs> implement some best in class practices like yeah they've they've deployed the breach playbook which is they wrote a blog that says they're very sorry and they take security seriously and they're going to pay for two years of identity protection um and they also said that they're you know if it makes you feel better they're going to work with uh, they've retained kpmg the analyst uh, the advisory company to help them uh, implement best practices which 
does not make me feel any better because you can already guess what the best practices are going to be. You don't need to spend $20 million with a consulting firm. That, to, yeah, and produce a consulting you, report. Check your logs. <laughs> check your, make sure you've got yeah. identity and access management straight, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Remove vulnerabilities, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. You're going to produce a report that nobody's going to read. Right. Uh, wave it around. And if the, if the, you know, if a senator so-and-so calls them out, they're going to, they might pull it out and dust it off. <laughs> exactly. It's window dressing. It's, all it's window. expensive window dressing. Yeah, not even glamorous window dressing. It's patently obvious that they're going to do the minimum possible with regards to this. To me, this sort of signals that it's becoming more obvious that we need around the world to raise the floor on IT security. Remember, we talked a few weeks ago about this idea of when the government does something, it needs to do... My general view, this is not always true, but my general approach is to look for government uh, legislation or government intervention that lifts the floor, not the ceiling. When you see a law that says, we're going to help the best companies, that's lifting the ceiling. That's not what government should do. That's what the market should do, in my opinion, generally, right? So, Uh um, but for something like this sort of stuff to protect the general populace, you need to raise the floor. And the way that they should do that is set minimum standards and also punishment around this. If a company fails to, they should be fined. The, you know, CEO and the directors of the company should be Find personally liable or something like that it, within the framework of that type of, you know, whatever is, is appropriate in the jurisdiction or the country that you're in. I mean, what is clear is that market-based incentives aren't working. So not last, at all. Yeah, yeah. Because there's just too many vulnerabilities here and it's just not happening. And T-Mobile is an easy target, but even worse, it's getting away with it. So I had hoped that cyber insurance would come along and companies would buy cyber insurance and then that would drive them to implement better practices and higher levels of security. But we talked about last week how cyber insurance probably isn't going to work in the long term. And it's unlikely to become a systemic market response to driving companies to better security. And so this really means that the governments around the world are probably going to have to step in and do something to, to fix this. A couple of suggestions for me. First is companies like T-Mobile have no reason to be collecting customer social security numbers. Just just don't collect it. And then that makes you less of a target. It makes it reduces the liability for you, reduces the liability for your end users who are going to have to go through hours and hours and hours of pain trying to rectify this because of how you screwed up. Second for companies to really demonstrate how serious they are about security after breach, fire the CEO. Just fire him. Strip yeah. him the golden parachute. Kick him out the door. Let, let's see some real action. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I'm not so sure that, you know, removing the CEO is an action, but making them personally liable. Not like most CEOs have liability insurance. So even if the government comes after them in a court of law, they get they get become personally liable. They have insurance that just pays up so they, they get away with everything, Right. So there has to be some, the only way to make it work is if the shareholders or the owners of the companies suffer in some way and that forces the CEO to act responsibly in the shareholders' interest. So I'm with you, Drew, but I think that's probably not (laughs) all that practical, you know. Uh, You know, it's it's a very difficult, yeah, it's a very difficult situation, of course, because we don't actually understand cybersecurity and the basic principles behind cybersecurity are going to change. So if you make legislation, the uh, the thing to look out for is that government legislation should focus on outcomes, not how you do right. it. Right. Exactly. It should say, if you have a breach, this is the penalty. It shouldn't say right. how to stop a breach. Exactly. Yeah. And so. 100% agree there. Yeah, yeah. Focus on the outcomes and that sort of stuff. Uh, and, you know, what we should see is things like mandatory reporting so that cyber insurance can be based around solid science on how often it happens and what's the cost impact so that people in the white, and this should happen for private and public companies and so on and so forth. So that's what I mean about the floor lifting. 
you know, it, it applies to everybody. It doesn't raise the ceiling, you know, just because you develop some sort of an incentive scheme for companies to get better and do better at cybersecurity. It doesn't stop the people who are bad at it from doing better. And you need to protect the people who can't protect themselves. So sick people or people with mental disorders, their details are out there. They can be exploited. That's who you're protecting. It's not you that's being protected. It's everybody around you. Well, even your average customer, again, who for you know no fault of their own is now vulnerable to identity theft, uh, which is seriously painful to yeah. rectify and try to prevent. And two years of free you know, monitoring doesn't do jack because you also have to share that sensitive information with the identity theft monitoring company and maybe they'll lose yeah, it too. Yeah, but it's right? only two so, years and you might have 10 lots of two years running concurrently. By the end exactly. of two years, you lose your credit monitoring. So, you know, credit monitoring is a furphy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you've got some uh, good ideas. I'm ready to start the revolution. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Uh, we better move on. Uh, HPE, they released their Q3 2021 financial results. The company had revenues of $6.9 billion, up 1% year over year or down 2% when adjusted for currency. In particular, the Intelligent Edge Division, aka Aruba, had revenues of $867 million, up 27% year over year. Switching in that group was up 20%. YLAN was single digits and Aruba SaaS was triple digits. So Intelligent Edge doing well for HPE. Yeah, lots of interesting things around this. The fact is that HPE seems to have ridden out the supply chain problems without any impact. Not a single mention in the report or any of the discussions around supply chain uh, impact, except to say, are you having supply chain problems? And they say words like, we have a best in class supply chain professionals, <laughs> blah, 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 right? So surprising to see that companies that are well run and conservative are going, it looks like they're going to weather. Like we've seen Cisco say the same thing. Cisco did say that they could say they'd sell more if they could, but they can't because of supply chain, but they're not in any sort of struggles. Other companies that are not conservative or maybe showing signs of weakness, they're the ones who are saying, oh, but supply chain is a real problem, but everybody's got the problem. It's become that That's becoming clear to me. Um, yes. Uh, and another thing here is I notice in the analyst reports, they say, here's one from Jeffrey's, we think HP Enterprise is reaching a point where the share shift to public cloud no longer completely offsets market-wide workload growth, and the company will see growth in core compute and storage business again. Uh, we see trends looking good for 2021, including an enterprise server refresh cycle as budgets open up, memory price increases, and demand pulling from customers looking to get ahead of price hikes, new Intel CPUs from EG Icelake, and four, COVID-19 recoveries, vaccines get deployed more broadly and economic activity normalizes. So Jefferies, which is a does deep research on HPE, um, basically is saying that, yes, things are going to the public cloud, but we're also seeing equivalent growth in on-premise infrastructure and private cloud. And that is now a growth scenario. And we know that to be true. We've talked about Cisco's growth. We talked about VMware's growth. And all that sort of stuff. The, the, the off-prem cloud is not the only answer. It has never been the only answer. That's been the hype or the branding. What is becoming clear is that companies are not moving to the public cloud on mass. They're being much more cautious, doing some there, but most on-prem. And you'll see a lot more growing sales on-premise. I think. Hmm. I think you know. I can see that there's. We're definitely, I guess, getting uh, tremors of sort of a, a cloud pushback. I don't know that cloud growth is necessarily going to slow all that perceptibly, but I do think there is more interest in making sure that you, what you can do on-prem and maintaining what you have on-prem is, is going to happen going forward. So there may be more investment in the enterprise premise going forward. Yeah. And there's a lot of pent-up demand. A lot of people delayed upgrades. 
mm-hmm. before because they were going to go public cloud. Now it's clear that public cloud isn't, you know, moving to the AWS mainframe or an Azure mainframe is not the only answer. It's just an right. answer that works for some things and not for others. And now you probably know what SaaS tools you're going to buy or shifting your email to Azure. But that doesn't mean that you still don't need to refresh your on-premise infrastructure over the next three to five years. I don't. I think ultimately there will always be a mix of on and off-prem in the yep. same way that you have hotels and houses. People live in houses because it makes sense to have house to own your house and to live in it and, and that. But then there's hotels for when you want to do certain weird and unusual exceptional things, and I think that's what public cloud is about. And all the hype about you know being cloud native is an operational mode, not actually being on somebody else's infrastructure particularly. Right. That's the said, where it makes most sense. That said, you know, we've talked a lot about HP Esmeral and GreenLake and how HP is making its infrastructure look a lot more like an off-prem cloud. Yeah, certainly the buying model, the cost model, they're making more cloud-like, yes. Yeah. So if you buy into that subscription idea, then, you know, or rent as you use, then we're starting to see viable options come from HP. Not so much from Cisco and Dell yet. I think they're still struggling internally to converge their product offerings. But then HP has been through a very painful transition so where it moved 50% of its business out, you know, took that legacy business and then just to focus on this. And then, of course, mm-hmm. prior to that, moved the desktops and the printer business, that part of the business away, the consumer business away from it. And HP really is just focused on the enterprise and particularly on the data center and the WAN. So very much uh, that infrastructure play. And it looks like it's starting to pay off for them. They are still quite small compared to its competitors. So, you know, a 20 billion market cap for HP compared to Cisco's 50 billion market cap. And Dell's eighty billion market cap is kind of you know they they are a small order company in that sense. Yeah, uh, just a couple of notes. Compute revenues for the quarter were three point one billion, which is down nine percent year over year. Storage was one point two billion, up four percent year over year. Yeah, and the suggestion there is that the pain's already happened. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we we took the hit. Yeah, things will be better going forward. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Right. Uh, last story, Dell Technologies also posted Q2 2022 results. The company had revenues of $26.1 billion, up 15% year over year. The company says it's its best second quarter ever. Net income was $880 million, down 20% year over year. And earnings per share was also down 23% year over year. So lots of revenue, um, but it's hard to see why this is their best quarter ever. But okay, there it is. <laughs> yeah, $26 billion in a single quarter is makes Dell the primary infrastructure company. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the interesting things I note is that the storage business is starting to struggle. Uh, Dell has relied heavily on the Dell EMC storage business unit to really keep its revenues pumping, but that uh, that might be showing signs of running out of steam. That legacy storage model is probably not where it needs to be. But overall, you know, down 20% year over year in an era of COVID and supply chain, not, not great, but not bad. So the client solutions group, that's like PCs and such, that was a bright spot, had record revenues of $14.3 which probably accounts for everyone having to transition to work from home and buying laptops and getting upgrades and so on. Uh, the infrastructure group, uh, that's storage and networking, they had revenues of $8.4 billion, up 3%, and it was about evenly split on the servers and networking side on one end and storage on the other. I think storage was uh, $4 billion and servers and networking was $4.4 billion. Yeah, it, I mean... It, it, what's unique here is that some companies are doing really, really well and some companies are doing really, really badly. And if you want to sit down and work out a line of thinking between which ones are doing badly and which ones are doing well, 
It's the companies that were using financial engineering to pop up their results. Cisco and Dell both very keen on financial, you know, finagling to get their numbers buffed up all the time and also running very lean. So part of the way that you, when you're doing financial optimization of your results, you run down your stocks, you have no, you know, backbone built in, whereas HPE is a much more conservative organization and, uh, also, they've been through a restructuring, whereas Dell and Cisco really haven't. They're the same companies that they've always been. All right, that wraps up the news. We don't have a Tech Bytes today, so we give you back 15 minutes of your lives. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Drew underscore CM if you want to see what I'm gassing about on social media. Greg, how about you? Uh, Twitter, almost exclusively on Twitter now, is at Ethereal Mind. Uh, I'm churning down the snark and focusing on just giving you links and stuff like that. Um, just because uh, I, I feel that's the way I feel right now. So there. All right. <laughs> I hope to see you on social media. As always, thanks for listening.